This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to K. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London, alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Alex, it seems what goes up must come down. European equities under a little bit of pressure today. The FTSE down by 1%, trading at 77.47 going into the close. Continental markets a little softer than that. The CAC Garant down by 1.9%. Uh, and stateside, you've got, what, the S&P down by 1%. Second day down how yeah. the, uh, the situation has changed. It's pretty ugly. And I have to wonder, you know, we're below the 50-day moving average for the S&P. We're not that far away from the 100-day. So part of me really, truly does think that this is positioning. We broke above the 200-day. We failed that. We rolled over. It's like the fifth time we've tried to break out of it, and we haven't been able to. So part of it feels that. The other part is like, well, we had a really nice run, so why not take from profits? And the other seems to be the lumpy economic data. Yesterday's data was bad. Today's data, not as bad. And that's a little bit confusing then uh, on how the Fed's going to be handling it. We came up with a fantastic question of the day for, for television a little bit earlier on. Um, he, he, he's mocking himself a touch. I, I'm actually mocking myself. Uh, so the question went along the lines of <laughs> bad news is bad news, which was yesterday because the economic data yesterday was bad. So the market went <gasps> recession and therefore took risk assets lower, i.e. equities. Today, mm. you get really solid employment data. The claims data is, is to my mind, slightly unbelievable, but nevertheless, really solid, basically signaling an incredibly strong labor market. So that's good news, but the market also took that as bad news. So yep. whichever way you go, it's so, good news is bad news, bad news is good news, take your pick. So what did you say? You went, ah, is that, is that, is that what, what was that noise? Uh, that was yeah, that was that noise. <laughs> I, I I modeled myself on you as you will as you know. True. Do you go to you, Charlie? You, I yeah. I got nothing. Silly, after that. silly noises. I. I do. I make silly noises. I make words up. You know. It's part of my charm. This. Yeah, I just I, I just want to I just want to emulate you. Anyway, Charlie <laughs> Pellet's here. With the headlines. And I thank you very much. And here's what's going on, Guy Johnson. Britain's train companies have made a best and final offer to the RMT, one of the most prolific unions behind strikes that have rocked the rail network for months. Workers have been offered a 5% backdated raise for 2022 and a further 4% this year. The Rail Delivery Group, which represents train operators, added that lower paid staff would be guaranteed a raise of £1,750 in the first year of the deal if this was more than the percentage wage increase. Defense Secretary Ben Wallace says the UK will send a further 600 brimstone missiles to Ukraine to help defend that nation against Russia's invasion. Brimstone is a ground or air-launched attack missile. The UK has already announced this week it's sending 14 Challenger 2 main battle tanks, long-range artillery, and more armored vehicles. Lloyd's Pharmacy has decided to close its counters in J. Sainsbury stores, leaving the UK's second biggest supermarket operator with no option for shoppers seeking pharmacy services. The move will affect 237 stores across the UK over the course of this year. Lloyd's Pharmacy says the decision is the result of a strategic review in response to changing market conditions. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellets, thank you very much. 
indeed. Charlie will be back in around 30 minutes' time. He will continue to keep us updated on what we need to know. Um, I want to turn our attention back to the World Economic Forum. Um, Christine Lagarde, the president of the ECB, was up in uh, the high-altitude environments of Davos, uh, giving a series of speeches throughout today. This on a day as well, we saw the ECB accounts uh, signalling that the ECB at its last meeting considered uh, a 75 basis point hike, went with 50. And the message from Christine Lagarde is, to the message, to those at Davos that are listening, we will continue to deliver hikes along similar lines. There was a story earlier on this week that suggested that maybe the ECB was preparing for a pivot down to 25. Christine Lagarde, very keen today to pour cold water on that. Inflation, by all accounts, however you look at it, is way too high. Uh, And our determination at the ECB is to bring it back to 2% uh, in a timely manner and taking all the measures that we have to take in order to do that. Christine Lagarde, uh, I think she speaks again tomorrow. Uh, We're also going to have an interview with Bruno Le Maire, the French finance minister. Um, So so the narrative now seems to be that that we get a 50 basis point hike at the next meeting at the beginning of next month and then in March probably uh, a similar story as well. Well, that certainly seems to be the communication uh, that we're getting from Christine Lagarde, uh, again from Klaus Knott as well today. Uh, He was speaking, the the Dutch central banker. uh, And it's, it's being echoed by a number of other central bankers at the ECB as well. Um, so 50-50, and then potentially 50 after that as well. Market's scratching his head and wondering whether this is real. Let's try and discuss, let's figure out what the reality is. Bloomberg Opinions' Marcus Ashworth joins us now. Marcus, if the if the ECB delivers the kind of rate hikes that Christine Lagarde and others are talking about, a 50-50 and potentially another 50 after that, how far into over-tightening territory do you believe that we will be? Um, I think there were 350s there, so let's say 150 then. Quite simple. Um, they uh, shouldn't uh, be adding up good. rates at all um, with their rather dire economy, uh, which is only going to get worse. Nonetheless, um, they are forced themselves into a situation of their own making. Um, I think Klaus Knott is uh, out there on the far right ranges of, of, of hawkishness and. Um, Though he's a very clever and very interesting man, I think he is being performative here. I do not think that uh, Lagarde or indeed Philip Lane believe this. They are forced into doing this. You look at the ECB accounts came out today. A large number of members initially expressed a preference. However, they expressed a willingness to agree to just 50 basis points, taking into account a broad majority support of Mr. Lane's proposal. So yet again, there's been a compromise. That's the nature of having a a 20-member uh, uh, community, I guess. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, that's what Lane's trying to do and, and Lagarde trying to sound all hawkish, hoping they could deliver one more 50 basis point rate hike. And then, as we had uh, reported to Bloomberg this week, they go down to 25. Marcus. To bring this off, they need the Fed. Do, okay, before we get down. to the Fed, um, do they are able to downshift to 25 because growth is so bad they have to, because inflation actually comes down a little faster, or because markets are front-running everything like we're seeing what's happening in the U.S., and they just have to kind of get ahead of it? Well, they won't care so much about the market, though the market is telling you doing their job for them. But they, they need to uh, put the Fed to run cover for them, which they hopefully will do. Um, but they are not in control of their own destiny here, and that's something which is slightly worrying. Uh, they've dragged their heels for so long, they're now forced into a situation where they are having to probably hike just at the wrong time as the economy is turning much lower. They're getting 
a little bit bailed out by energy. Growth has not been as yep. weak as certainly as I had expected. So you know there are there's a way out of here, but it doesn't constitute hiking 50 basis points time and time again. You know they just need to pause a bit, go down 25, have a little think. And they're starting QT by the way in March as well, and they're collapsing the Teltro balance sheet side. So they're doing three things at once with a weak economy, week before the pandemic, let alone after it and the Russian invasion. So, you know, as long as energy prices keep staying staying low and they, they see a bit of a pause, they might just about get away with it. But I think if they- The, the, the labor market is, the, let, let's look at it the other way around, Marcus. The labor market is strong and, and continues to be strong. There is hoarding of labor. Hmm. We're not seeing unemployment ticking up sharply. Energy prices have come down, which is going to put money back into people's pockets, which they're going to spend in the service area, which is where the sticky inflation is coming from. Don't they have a reason, uh, a need to, to maybe be a, a little bit more brutal here? Well, certainly that's what uh, one could argue, possibly even a majority of the governing council clearly now think. Um, I, I think that's, you know, a situation in Germany and Netherlands is dramatically different from elsewhere. That's the trouble with unfortunately having a large community. They've got to balance it somehow. And at the moment, there's no doubt to my mind, the Bundesbank has taken back control of the governing council away from the garden lane, uh, and they're trying to cover it up. Um, I don't know how long it will last, but uh, the, the cracks will continue to appear. I think if they if they can't continue hiking rates at, at 50 basis points, the wheels will fall off Italy. And that, that unfortunately, is the, is the brutal reality. What does that look like? What do the wheels falling off look like? Well, I mean, obviously, if it looks really, really bad, it means the end of the European Union. But let's not get over our. Well, are we over going like two? Here. Are we going back to 2013 situation, 2011 kind of situation? Well, or no? Yeah, 2011 is certainly is, is a situation whereby you know it won't be the same. It, will, it won't be as bad. There are definitely dramatic uh, things better than, than that situation. But it's unnecessary, and there's a large amount of debt need to be borrowed this year. It's you know many hundreds of billions, and you get a bond market strike, a, a, something along the lines of the bond vigilante stuff we saw in the gilt market only a few months ago. It's very possible. Now, at the moment, it's looking quite the other way. Everyone seems to not believe ECB and believe they will not be able to hike, and therefore they're happy buying bonds. I don't know how long that will last. Is there, is, there, is there a safety mechanism in place? Do you believe in the safety mechanism? We have this idea that the ECB has the potential to step in and protect Italy if, if it were required. Do you, do you think that there is there's it. a credibility no. issue around that? hundred percent doesn't exist. It's 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 complete poppycock. You know the TPI the transmission protection. It, it it is non-existent. It is a, like a unicorn. Nonetheless, uh, that doesn't mean that something else will not come in its place. We have the uh, European Stability Mechanism (EFSF). Yep. There are, are a bunch of different uh, vehicles which can be wheeled into action if need be. The one thing about European Union is we found out throughout the Euro crisis they will find a way around it. It just won't look pretty. Um, let's turn to what else has been happening at Davos today. Uh, Rishi Sunak, the uh, the Prime Minister, has decided not to go this year. Um, one could argue for obvious reasons. Do you want to be seen in Davos at a time when there are ongoing strikes, strikes that are related to a cost of living crisis? The Labour Party have decided that that this is an opportunity. So Keir Starmer, so Keir Starmer was there today. Rachel Reeves, uh, the Shadow Chancellor, uh, was there as well. Starmer was on a number of panels. We heard from Reeves throughout the day, uh, and the message was was kind of multi pronged. But one of the messages, Marcus that they were delivering was that the Labour Party now sees the opportunity, were they to get into power, to enhance the relationship 
with the EU. Now, I'm assuming that from a sort of EU global point of view, they're pushing against an open door. They would have got a very kind of warm and welcome, uh, warm and welcoming reception to that kind of narrative. But is the process already underway? Is this something that has already started? I, Sunak is clearly has clearly already decided that that it is necessary for the UK economy to change what has been quite a hostile environment into one that is at least more manageable. Yeah, I mean, Sunak can, can see the writing on the wall here. And uh, if he doesn't get something done, a rapprochement, the Northern Ireland Protocol, and a raft of other stuff, small boats with France, and a wider sense of, of getting back to being able to do business in Europe, then Starmer will just walk through the door and, and claim all those low-hanging fruit. I don't think there's much love for the UK, uh, Starmer or Sunak, doesn't matter who. Uh, I don't think they want us back in the EU. So let's get that very clear. I mean, I hear that loud and clear whenever you speak to anyone from Brussels. Nonetheless, do they want to, uh, to prove themselves right? Absolutely. And will there be some uh, potential offerings to uh, either a new um, Labour government or indeed mm-hmm. a, a formed and a more, more approachable conservative one? Sure. So, so, so when they say, so when you have uh, Rachel Reeves saying uh, Britain will be very much open for business, what does that, what does that mean? I mean... Uh, Wonderful that- line. I mean, world class. The, the new Labour uh, government, <laughs> shadow government, uh, they have their um, uh, advisors careful, have, have been really, yes, indeed, you know, careful what you wish for us to say. Um, but uh, they certainly know what they're doing. And uh, there's been a lot of very easy, easy wins. And they continue to, to, to collect them quietly, keep their mouths relatively shut. No, no major policy mistakes yet. One or two, you could argue on wider domestic issues. But as far as uh, international stuff is concerned at the moment, now, this is free, free, free candy for them. Is there in a way, if you were to change the relationship with the EU of resolving the labour crisis that, that exists in this country, there's simply just... I, I, I'm not saying there aren't enough people. There aren't enough people willing to do the jobs we need them to do in this economy right now, as a result of which you have a labour market that is unbelievably tight uh, relative to the, Euro- to, to the European peer group, even versus the United States. Yeah, but that's that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, low low unemployment isn't that good. I mean, compared to where a lot of Europe are, which is even if it comes higher, with inflation, even if it comes with inflation. I mean, yeah, obviously that is that is the the flip side which we're seeing. I, I think some of that's ameliorating through. I'm not quite as uh, as as worried about it as some people are. Um, and and clearly with inflation quite high, you also want paid to be you know at least not falling too far behind. Nonetheless. Um, you, you've got to be careful that wage price bar. I think we'll, we'll, the Bank of England is on top of that, uh, and the government is also very aware of what they're doing with regards to the current strikes with the public sector. So I'm not quite so pessimistic on that. But you know, there is a lot of things that need to be changed and that have, have been dysfunctional. And, and clearly, some uh, elements of, of uh, lack of ability of, of workers from the European Union had some some effect. But most of it, I think, virtually all of it, was COVID-driven. A lot of stuff to come back because they have residency here. And we have plenty of immigration coming through. That's not a doubt. It's just not necessarily from Europe. Hmm. Interesting. I feel like a lot of people would disagree with that. But interesting point. I feel like the same thing in the U.S. You have, you're have you missing like millions of workers. Is it COVID related? Is it also needed an immigration reform? I mean, it's, it's, it's maybe above all of those things. And then how do you fix it then becomes the problem. Marcus, thank you very much. Marcus Ashworth for joining us of Bloomberg Opinion. And also highlight UK retail sales. Coming out tomorrow. We know the guy just crushed the shops in December, but January, February, he's not doing anything. That's definitely going to be reflected in the data. Um, Okay, coming up, we're going to go to France. Strikes underway. We'll get the impact. This is Bloomberg. 
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Okay, we talked about what's happening in the UK economy. Let us now turn our attention to what is happening over in France. Uh, President Emmanuel Macron's pension reform plans uh, have expectedly uh, sparked protests across the country. They started today, Black Thursday, some people have been calling it. Uh, We've seen disruptions, unions basically uh, hitting the railways, the metro system in in Paris, schools, hospitals, uh, all being disrupted today, the air traffic control system uh, being disruptive. Um, We've seen um, loadings of oil being disrupted. Um, Let's bring in Bloomberg Paris Bureau Chief Alan Katz. Alan, let's talk about the impact that these strikes have had. It's kind of day one, but I get a sense that this could be a quite a long process. What impact did day one have? Well, it, as you mentioned, it's uh, it's been quite a big impact for the first day of these protests. Uh, a lot of school teachers were out, so a lot of schools were closed or you know operating essentially just as daycare centers for for the kids. Um, the electricity output went down. Earlier today, as EDF uh, workers for Electricité de France, which is the big uh, electricity monopoly, uh, essentially lowered output from nuclear reactors. Um, as you pointed out, trains have been have been quite affected, as have some uh, some flights. So it's been quite a big impact that the, the unions, in particular, wanted to have on the first day of this of this sort of protest mm-hmm. period. As you mentioned, this is not a one-day event. This is going to have you know sort of repeated uh, episodes. Um, Alan, how many workers in France are part of unions? So not really any more than in the United States. You, you have various estimates, and, and if I recall correctly, I believe it's somewhere between eight and ten percent are actually members of unions. So it's not it's not super high. Where it is much higher is in. Um, the public sector, so you know, government employees, teachers, which are all um, the national education system, um, and railway uh, workers, because it's state-owned. Um, so, in those sectors, it is the the level of union membership is much higher, and so that's why you end up having those sectors affected more when you have strike days like today as well. What is the objective of the unions? Is it to completely remove this policy, or is this a negotiating tactic? Um, I suppose ideally the former, in reality the latter. Um, the chance of, of the government fully backing down on any change in the retirement system seems extremely remote. Um, uh, yeah, I suppose never say never, but uh, it really does seem extremely remote. But the idea would be that they would try to get some level of um, change or, or, or softening of the government's position is, is probably what they're, what they're realistically expecting. They've already, it's already gone some some way down that road. Initially, Emmanuel Macron, when he was running for, for a second term um, back last spring, he kept saying it's going to be 65, it's going to be 65, it's going to be 65. Mm-hmm. And even this fall, he talked about 65 years old as the minimum retirement age. And he's pulled that back to 64 in the actual presentation. So, you know, the idea that, that protests won't have any impact is probably wrong as well. It will have some impact on what the final bill or the final law looks like. That's what I was trying to wrap my mind around earlier. Like, where's there room left to negotiate? Like, we go from 65 to 64, the retirement age is already 62. Like, we're splitting hairs over two years? I just, I don't quite understand. And and Caroline Conan, for example, has been on the street talking to people, and there was a really interesting soundbite that she had from a 21-year-old who was like, we shouldn't have to work people until they die. You're 62! 
<laughs> Who's dying at 62? So actually, and this is, um, uh, in addition to Caroline, uh, uh, Sammy, our government reporter, was also out at the uh, march earlier today. And he uh, interviewed someone who had, I thought she had a reasonable point on this, which is that it's easy for you and me to say, oh, it's 62. This is very easy. I mean, her, her, her quote is, um, it's fine for well-paid white-collar workers to retire a bit later. That's not shocking. And she herself, the woman who said this, is 62 years old and, and just retired as a health care worker. Um, and, but she was marching in this protest, she said, because two more years is a lot if you're a truck di- driver or if you're tile floors for a living or if you're a roofer. Yeah. So I think that's really the, the, the fundamental difference is this, you know, I, I, I agree with you. For white-collar workers, it's really not a big deal. For blue-collar workers, it's, it is a much bigger deal. And that's where a lot of the anger comes from, too, because if you've – essentially, if you do – if you involved in higher education in France and you don't start working until you're 22, 24, 25, this this change means very little to you. If you started to work as a plumber when you're 18, it means a lot to you. And that's I think that's part of the, the feeling of unfairness that's that's motivating a lot of people. In terms, therefore, of the way out of this, is it about producing a more, more nuanced plan, one that takes into account some of these differences? And as you say, if you're on the tools and and and, and you work a, a, a sort of a more physical job, it is more difficult to continue that. It takes a lot out of you. But as you say, if you're a white collar worker, it doesn't. How can the French finesse it? Well, that's a good question because, as I mentioned, they've already pulled back a little bit from the initial proposal that Macron presented, which in an effort to try to sort of finesse that by saying, okay, well, we'll reduce the minimum minimum retirement age by one year and we'll still keep a bunch of exceptions for people what they have, they term it in France here, sort of have had long careers. Um, and so some people, if you started very early, you'll still be able to retire at 60 or 61. Or, But it's it's the, the difficulty is, is that there's only one thing that's easy to understand, and that's the minimum retirement age. And so even if it turns out like, oh, because I've been working as a roofer since age 16, I can actually retire at 60, it, people it's hard for people to grasp that because, in fact, the only thing that they can understand, because it is quite complicated, actually, what's been presented, is, okay, the minimum retirement age is sixty is 64, and I'm going to have to work until 64 no matter what, mm-hmm. um, and that's and that's making me angry. And so the answer is, like, yes, you can finesse it, but it's very hard if you have one headline number, which they do yeah. for this reform. So then in that respect, it seems like the government is going to have to give in if you phrase it like that. Well, not necessarily. There have been reforms like this before. They, when they raised the retirement age from 60 to 62, for example, um, there was lots of protests over it, and, and it passed anyway. Because the, the other thing is, is to come back to it again, you have a, high, a, a big proportion of people who work in France, white-collar workers in particular, who are like, okay, fine, whatever. You know, I'll, I'll work an extra couple of years. I might not love it, but I don't hate it, and then I'm actually okay with my job. And um, And so you have a good proportion of people who are in that situation also. And so you don't it's it's not it's not obvious that the government is going to have to back down on this. Also, because it doesn't really matter to Macron if he becomes unpopular, he's not going. He's in the second term; he can't run again. Um, and so, and he can push it through. Whether he has the votes in parliament or not, he can still push it through. He can either do it with a vote in parliament or through a decree. Mm-hmm. Decree is more controversial. He can do it anyway, though. Yeah, that decree thing sounds really odd. All right, Alan, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Really wonderful perspective and analysis. Alan Katz joining us, Bloomberg's uh, Paris Bureau Chief. All right, coming up, we're going to go back to the U.S. markets and take a check-in on the sell-off here uh, and also hear more from James Gorman, CEO of Morgan Stanley. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. 
Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bluebrick DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. So a quick check in here on U.S. markets. We did the macro, right? The S&P is down. You had new home sales coming in not as bad. Jobless claims coming in not as bad. So the good news still means bad news for markets. Yesterday, the bad news also meant bad news for markets. That's the macro. I want to get into some of the specific stocks, though, for just a moment. So uh, one is Procter & Gamble. Um, they still see organic revenue up as much as high as 5% for the year. Um, however, their volume of sales fell as prices increased. The market took that negatively, as in like they don't necessarily believe the forecast can be sustained. Also, Discover, their shares dropping the most in about six months. They're looking at net charge-offs to climb as high as almost 4% this year. You're getting a trend. Consumer under pressure, consumer under stress. On the other part of the side, you get Alcoa also lower. They're worried about demand soft in China, as well as weaker demand over in Europe. And then, to tap it all off, KKR, that stock getting hit pretty hard, now down by almost 6%. Um, they have well, limited its withdrawals from its real estate investment trust after, shocker, investors sought to pull out more money, a la Blackstone, and that stock getting hit as well. All right, quick snapshot there for some of the stocks moving here in the U.S. Here is Charlie Pellet with some other news. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says he wants to cut the country's tax burden, but can only do so once inflation is under control. Sunak says his priority is to bring down inflation, which is currently at more than five times the Bank of England's 2% target, and reduce the national debt. He blames factors including the coronavirus pandemic and Russia's war in Ukraine, causing energy prices to spike for Britain's current economic struggles. Defense Secretary Ben Wallace, meanwhile, says the UK will send a further 600 brimstone missiles to Ukraine to help defend the nation against Russia's invasion. European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde says inflation remains too elevated, vowing that policymakers will not let up in their efforts to return price growth to the target. The cost of household energy use in the UK is tumbling even faster than previously forecast. According to consultant Cornwall Insight, Cornwall says the annualized energy bill for a typical household might drop just below 3,200 pounds in the quarter through June. That's almost 10% below the estimate of just two weeks ago. A mild winter has curbed power and gas demand. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele back to you now here in New York. Lower energy prices, more money to spend on stuff. I don't know. I'm just saying that. Um, all right, let's go back to Davos here. We've had a lot of great interviews today. One in particular, James Gorman, always feisty, CEO of Morgan Stanley. He sat with Lisa and David uh, at Davos and talked about how inflation's peaked, but the global financial situation isn't as bad as it may seem. It was a good day because I, I told our board a couple of years ago what I'd really like to see, selfishly, is a very difficult environment. I don't want to see it for the country. I mean, it's not fair, but, but for Morgan Stanley, because I wanted to prove the business model uh, would do fine when things are really difficult. And in fact, we had uh, our second best year ever in revenues and net income, uh, third best in EPS in our history. So, you know, what, what it proved was the volatility of the markets business, everybody understands. The volatility of underwriting, IPOs are not happening when things are very uncertain, uh, trading and the like. But what we proved is by having you know, between five and six trillion dollars of people's money under management, that is stable. And that's that was the design 12 years ago, and we've got there. 
one thing that you said was you are planning to expand some of the wealth management aspect, even as you cut back other parts of the business. You uh, acquired E-Trade, Eaton Vance. Is there another acquisition that you're trying to target, or is it going to be just sort of organic growth? No, I think it's a mix of both. I mean, we started off with Smith Barney uh, 14 years ago. Then we acquired um, a wonderful little uh, company in Calgary, Canada, called Solium, which did all the sort of uh, workplace stock plan businesses uh, for a lot of the S&P companies. Then we bought E-Trade, then we bought Eaton Vance, and we bought Mesa West, which is another company. So we've, we've, been, we've been building them, and as opportunities come up, we keep, we keep acquiring those spaces. Is there room for another large acquisition? There's always room, um, <laughs> but we, we like things that aren't balance sheet intensive. Uh, we like things that help grow scale in spaces that we understand. And, um, you know, we like things when we know what the capital picture looks like. So, we, you know, at the moment we've been quite aggressive with our buyback. We doubled our dividend two years ago. We increased 11% last year. Um, but we're also dealing with changing regulatory environment. So you're managing between what are the capital demands regulators require, how do you distribute it through dividends and through buybacks, and then what do you need to do to invest in the business, and part of that investment, of course, is acquisition. So it's a multi sort of chess game that we're playing. Uh, James, you said it was some, there were some difficulties, and you were happy that you could manage through those difficulties and show that your model works. Some of the difficulties were some highly leveraged loans for some acquisitions and things like that. Yeah. Uh, is that crimping your ability going forward to make some of those highly leveraged loans? Are you changing the risk calculus? No, we, we've been, I would say, um, erred conservative over the last two years. In fact, it was September, I think September a year, year and a half ago, that I met with the management committee and said, let's, let's all just pull it in 5-10%, right? Um, and our RWAs, our risk-weighted assets, actually declined uh, at the end of the year. So we, we did that. And so within the leverage loan space, again, erred a little conservative, but we have a large portfolio. Obviously, you're going to take some losses in these markets within that. They're absorbed in our numbers, but you're also generating a lot of interest income, a lot of fees on it. So in balance, David, I think we're reasonably well positioned, but we're, we're definitely not trying to be aggressive in this environment. There is one high-profile loan that might rhyme with Twitter uh, that we're going to have to talk about. The Twitter loan uh, that I know Morgan Stanley led on. Could Morgan Stanley end up owning Twitter? Could Morgan, that, I've never been asked that question. Uh, no, we could not end up owning Twitter. Well, do you plan on offloading uh, those loans or do you just plan to hold them? Firstly, Twitter's a great company and, and, and let's be fair, Elon Musk is, is one of the greatest entrepreneurs and business people you know, in the last century. And that's not, that's not an exaggeration. Look what he did, just take the boring company alone, let alone SpaceX, let alone Tesla. I mean, this, this person has extraordinary capabilities. Uh, Twitter is a great company, obviously, it's gone through restructuring. Um, uh, you know, it's it's part of our. I'm not going to talk about the specific loan position we have, uh, but um, we're very comfortable with that position. So uh, there are a lot of things we don't know about the economy going forward. One thing that people seem to be reasonably confident is the rates are going to be higher. Interest rates are going to be higher than they have been in the past. How does that basic fact change your business? How do you manage your business differently when you've got rates at four, five, six percent instead of zero to one half percent? Well, we had we had an artificial environment. You know, I, I remember when I came to the United States. I mean, obviously, as, a, as an unsecured student, I wasn't a great credit, <laughs> and the bank loan reflected it. I paid 24 percent. My first mortgage was 14. 
13.5%. So we've lived in a sort of we've lived in a surreal world for a decade, which is the legacy of the financial crisis. To get the economy back to where it was, central governments around the world kept rates near zero. Then along came COVID, which delayed what would have been a natural rise in rates globally. Then along came the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, which further delayed it. Finally, you turn the corner in 2022, mid-22, when the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world, um, not by coordination, just by need, had to normalise rates back to neutral. They've gone higher than that. They had to go higher in order to take some of the fluff out of the economy. So I see it as sort of a natural consequence. I don't think of it as particularly alarming. Morgan Stanley's James Gorman talking to us a little bit earlier on at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Uh, a self-declared optimist. Uh, there seems to be a lot of optimists in Davos this year. Uh, he certainly feels like he is at the front of the queue. Uh, we're going to take you back to Davos next. We need to talk about what's happening with the debt ceiling. Joe Manchin uh, was talking about it at the World Economic Forum. We're going to take you to DC for the latest. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. We will pay our debts. We always have, we always will. How messy is it going to get getting from point A to point B? We don't know yet. We're going to target basically the debt and the increasing of the debt to how we can basically prevent that from continuing to increase as it does and start a downward trend. And there has to be some discipline and there has to be some sacrifice. That was Senator Joe Manchin uh, speaking there at Davos about the debt ceiling because we have hit extraordinary measure time. Talking about the debt ceiling, Bloomberg congressional reporter Laura Davison uh, joins us now. Uh, Laura, just to contextually, when we say hitting extraordinary measures, like literally what does that mean? Like are we taking money from something and putting it to something else to pay the bills? What this means is they're basically using kind of specialized accounting tricks to conserve money so that we don't hit the debt limit as fast. It sort of slows everything down and says, here's what we can do uh, so we don't hit, uh, you know, we don't kind of continue on that same trajectory towards the debt limit. Um, It's really, the name is extraordinary measures, but really it should be ordinary measures because this is what happens basically every time uh, we get close to hitting the debt limit. Joe Manchin was talking about it getting messy. How messy could it get? Uh, really quite messy. Uh, you know, we're looking at a Republican-controlled House, um, a very divided caucus there. We've seen, um, of you know, some of the most conservative Republicans that want to extract big spending cuts. And you have the White House and Democrats in the Senate basically saying that they don't want to do any of that. So, you know, there's about six months or so that they have for these negotiations to play out. But even getting close to that, you know, sometime perhaps in June when the debt ceiling could be breached could really spook markets and have some big economic consequences. So this is, and I mentioned this earlier, a huge test for Kevin McCarthy, the new speaker. And I wonder how you view it. I mean, not only in how he deals with the White House, but also how he's able to coalesce his fellow Republicans. And can they all agree on one stance and sort of what the super right wing part of the party does? Like, how are you thinking about it? Yeah, so you, there's really kind of three different factions within um, the Republican Party. If you have, you know, the very, very conservative uh, members, uh, this kind of right flank, very rebellious, and Kevin McCarthy is essentially living in fear of, of these people because, remember, at any single, at any moment, just one of them could call up a vote of no confidence for him. Um, so he really, um, you know, is sort of beholden to what they want him to do. Um, and then you have some moderates who are, are basically saying this would be, you know, incredibly irresponsible for us to not 
uh, you know, or even, you know, flirt with the idea of, of uh, you know, not raising the debt ceiling. Um, so what you could see playing out over the next couple of months is sort of from Kevin McCarthy is this sort of, you know, vote no, uh, but hope yes, that, you know, hope that he's basically no, saved by yes. some moderates in the middle, you know, we'll, we'll come together with Democrats um, to cut a deal um, so he doesn't have to uh, do it and, you know, risk uh, in uh, making his uh, the right flank there very mad. The markets at this point seem to be kind of taking this one on the chin. Nobody seems to be getting overly overwrought on Wall Street. What What is the impact? What impact will Wall Street have on D.C. if things start to get a little messy, though? Do, do, does Wall Street, does, does D.C. listen to Wall Street? Um, some of D.C. does, and particularly some of those, uh, you know, those moderates, the kind of country club Republicans that have been very, you know, interested in financial markets. So that's really a dying breed in Washington. You know, you see uh, more and more, especially in the House, um, these Republicans coming in saying that they're not concerned about what corporations want, that they're more, uh, they're, they're more focused on, on ideology. So you'll, you'll certainly see um, CEOs and, and, and financial markets start reaching out and, and writing letters and, and calling up members of Congress. Um, it's not clear how much impact that's going to have this time. Well, that's 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 quite interesting because that's a whole different dynamic uh, than it was what eleven years ago at this point, twelve years ago, um, when we had that credit rating downgrade. So if the markets can't pressure DC to get their act together, and it feels like nothing is done unless there's like a deadline that was yesterday, when does something act? What, what moves the needle this time? It's probably going to be when they start seeing, uh, you know. The groundswell from from constituents, from regular people, when people start looking and seeing their retirement savings, uh, nose diving, seeing you know that there's a potential that you know they may not be able uh, to you know pay their mortgage, or you know you think about all of the, the things that the federal government touches a federally backed mortgage, school yep. lunch programs, um, you know just um, everyday people would be um, massively impacted uh, by this, or even if we even get close to this. Laura, great stuff as ever. We really appreciate your coverage. Thank you very much indeed. Laura Davidson, Bloomberg Congressional Reporter, joining us from Washington, D.C. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. So Netflix will be reporting numbers after the U.S. close this evening. Now... As ever, the focus will be on subscriber numbers, but you've also got to be looking out as well this time round for the impact that the ad-based service will be will be offering when it comes to the revenue line. Uh, there's lots to look forward to here. There's lots of detail that is worth digging into. Uh, let's get uh, a little bit of a head start on what we're going to be looking at a little bit later. Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Media Analyst Geetha uh, Ranganathan joining us now uh, to give us a take. Geetha, let, let's start off with the kind of the number that we've, we're all kind of always looking for, and that's the subs number. What are you anticipating? Yeah, absolutely. So the sub number that we're all looking for is four and a half million uh, new subscriber additions for 4Q. That is what the company has guided to. That is what most analysts across Wall Street are expecting, just kind of given some of the recent download data, as well as some of the content titles that we've seen and the extreme you know, success that we've seen with a lot of their most recent content titles. So that is the absolute number one metric. But as you pointed out, it's not just going to be a subscriber number game anymore. A lot of the focus now is going to be shifting to um, the revenue number. Uh, top line growth is their primary metric going forward. And to that end, 
end, it'll be interesting to see if they give us any number, any facts and figures around the launch of their advertising tier. What would be good and what would be a bad number in that sense, since it's all new to us? So it's really hard to say at this point in terms of an advertising number. We expect it to be really, really small in the context of, you know, the the, the, the ultimate customer base, which is around 223 million subscribers. But if they do miss on subscriber guide, which is the four and a half million, I think that then again will cause a, a lot of trepidation amongst investors. But if they can, of course, offset that with some positive commentary, either on the revenue front or on the free cash flow front, remember, they are cutting costs, or at least they're holding them constant. Uh, so if we get any any guidance there, any positive guidance there, again, those are key things that I think investors will be looking for. Do you think content's going to have a meaningful impact? This is a company that's come out with quite a lot of new content over the holidays. Glass Onion, obviously, is one that stands out. Is there an expectation that, that these titles will have an impact, will have supported, uh, particularly the subscriber numbers? Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen a lot of that actually in some of the most recent downloads, app downloads data that we've been tracking. So we had 3Q, which kind of uh, ended on a pretty strong note. We had some pretty big hits right in the third quarter. And then it kind of seemed to build momentum into the fourth quarter, right? Whether you had, you know, season five of The Crown or you had Emily in Paris or you had the Harry and Meghan show. And then most recently, of course, Wednesday and and a whole bunch of films, including uh, the Knives Out sequel. So they've had multiple, multiple titles that have really resonated well with audiences. It's not just that one, uh, you know, sleeper hit that comes out. So I think what investors are generally expecting is now the steady cadence of, you know, consistent hits that the service can deliver quarter after quarter. And I think that is definitely going to feed into the subscriber momentum, uh, as well as the revenue momentum. So the stock has definitely recovered from the massive hit that it took that started uh, December of 2021. But it's nowhere near where it was before. How is it valued? Is it appropriately valued for the metrics that you just laid out? I think it definitely is appropriate. Is it, is it yeah. cheap or are we like right on it? Um, one can argue that it could probably go uh, up a little bit more, but I think, uh, you know, we finally kind of come to this realization that this is a maturing, slow growth company. That said, it is a highly profitable company and we're probably going to see free cash flow, uh, you know, maybe even double or triple this year coming in from 2022. So 2022, the number that, that we're looking for is about a billion dollars in free cash flow. Remember, this was a company that was burning about three, three and a half billion dollars in cash just about three, four years ago. So, so this has been a remarkable turnaround. And what we're looking at is really in two to three years, this company generating about five to six billion dollars every year in free cash flow which would then support buybacks, uh, hopefully, you know, if they, if they resume them. And so then, arguably, they should deserve even a higher multiple. So how rate, this used to be a highly rate-sensitive company. I, at the time, it wasn't really an issue because rates were incredibly low. But they used debt to fund production. As the, as the company matures and that model changes, how, how does that kind of arithmetic work? Yeah, so, you know, they haven't really gone, uh, so they have about 12 uh, to $13 billion in debt, which seems uh, really very reasonable, kind of given a, a company of their size and definitely relative to other media peers. Uh, I think they've said that all of their content will be self-produced from this point onwards. They're really seeing a lot of operating leverage in the model. So we don't necessarily see, um, you know, debt as kind of posing a huge problem. I think where we're really going to, um, you know, 
um, look look for in terms of the use of capital is do, do they go after any of these you know, smaller acquisition targets? Mm. Do they go after sports rights? I mean, these are the big questions. Do they go after a gaming studio? Um, so far, they haven't really shown any big appetite for any huge M&A deals. But again, you can never say never. Should they? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, with sports, I don't think they should go after sports. But if they are really looking to make a big mark in advertising, if they think that advertising is going to be the way for them going forward, then it probably makes some sense for them to go after sports because you do want that live audience. You do want to be able to charge um, you know, advertisers premium rates, and you will be able to demand those premiums if you have you know, live sports on your, on your, on your platform. That said... Um, you know, sports yep. has generally been a loss leader. So uh, that's something they'll have to really evaluate closely. Is Netflix still the benchmark for the sector? It absolutely is. They are the only company right now in the streaming sector that is generating a profit. Hmm. Uh, and so everybody is going to play catch up. Everybody is going to use their model as kind of the template going forward to see how much of margins, what the end game unit economics will be. I mean, that is all going to be driven off of what Netflix has achieved. Do we know when The Witcher Season 3 is going to come out? <laughs> <laughs> Most important question. I think it's going to be sometime this year, but I might be wrong. No, I mean, come on, man. I mean, I feel like it's been over a year since I got the last one. Um, okay, I talked my book there because I'm rewatching the season. It's like the perfect show for Alex. All right, Geetha, thanks a lot. We'll check, check, check back in with you tomorrow. I'm sure Netflix trading down uh, by almost 2%. Geetha Ranganathan of Bloomberg Intelligence. That wraps it up for Guy and myself on this Thursday. Much more coming up. UK retail sales, like I said, how Guy was spending. And I'm going to be looking uh, at Netflix, and we still have some more Davos, Guy. All right, we do. I, I think we, we're kind of firmly winding down Davos tomorrow, but much more still to come. Hope you enjoyed the show. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>